Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing here. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Every four years, the world turns its attention towards a set of sporting events that are put on the world stage. We call these events the Olympic Games. Every four years, they pick some city around the world, and athletes from all over the world come together in this global spectacle. This year, in 2016, in August, we'll be celebrating the Olympic Games again. This, this time around, they're held in the beautiful nation of Brazil, and that major city of Rio is where the Games are going to be held. And every year when the Olympics come around, I don't know about you, but I, I love the Olympic Games. And it's interesting that, to me, a lot of the sports in the Olympics, most of the time, I could absolutely care less about. But when the Olympics come around, I'm like a rabid fan, right? I'm like, I'm DVRing it, and I'm, I'm following what's going on. And because the Olympic Games are this, this, this global event where we get to celebrate some incredible athletes. And it's interesting because the athletes are not the... ESPN celebrities that we see on television all the time, for the most part. Some of them are involved, but by and large, most of the athletes are men and women who we've never heard most of their names. We don't really know much about their sport, but this Olympic Games just brings these hometown heroes. It's kind of like watching every man go out and compete on the world stage, and it's just awesome. In 2004... The Olympic Games were uniquely historic in that they were held in the birthplace of the Olympic Games, Athens, Greece. It's kind of like the mothership of the Olympic Games. That's where it all started centuries ago. In 2004, they held the Games there again, and there were, again, many names that were added to legendary status in the United States, men like Michael Phelps and Paul Hom, all those names became famous during the 2004 Olympics. But there was another name that, that received a lot of fame in 2004 that you may or may not remember his story. But he was an athlete representing the United States, and his name was Matt Emmons. Matt represented the United States in an event called the three-position 50-meter rifle event. That's a picture of Matt Emmons and what he looked like getting ready to compete in his Olympic event. Now, what's unique about Matt Emmons' story is that he literally was the best in the world. In, in the competition in 2004, when it came down to his final shot, Matt Emmons was so far ahead of everybody else in the competition... All he had to do to win the gold medal was just hit the target anywhere. Rick Riley, a Sports Illustrated writer, he wrote it this way in a Sports Illustrated article. 
He said, with one shot to go in Athens, Emmons was on his way to a laugher of a win in the three-position 50-meter rifle event. In fact, all he had to do was hit the target. It'd be like telling Picasso all he had to do was hit the canvas. Emmons fired, then looked at his monitor to see how he'd done. But there was no bullet hole. He told an official there must be some weird glitch. Just then the official saw two holes in the target of the shooter next to Emmons and announced that the American would receive a zero for the shot. In his hurry to claim the gold medal, Matt Emmons stepped up and he accidentally aimed at the wrong target. And not only did he not win the gold medal in 2004, because of a zero, he fell completely out of medal contention and did not place at all in the 2004 Olympic Games. And before you feel too sad for Matt Emmons, Matt went back in 2008, won the gold medal, and it was that motivation from what had happened that drove him back. And while he was at the 2008 Olympic Games, he met who would become his wife. So it turned out pretty good for Matt, right? So Matt, if you're here this morning, I'm sorry to make you relive that horrific event in your life. I apologize. But there's a great moral for us to learn in the story of Matt Emmons. Here it is. We better be sure. We better be sure that we're aiming at the right target. And so with that story as kind of a foundation, I want to ask you two questions this morning as we begin a new series here at Hope. Here's the first question. This is the easy one. How many of you desire to faithfully follow Jesus? Let me see your hand. Just hold them up for a second. It's your desire to faithfully follow Jesus, right? I mean, that's what I thought. Look around you. Keep them up for a second. Keep them up. Keep them up. This is the easy part. I mean, we're at church, right? This is what we assume, that most people here, okay, you can put them down. Now you're looking great, looking tired. Most people here are here because they would say, I desire to faithfully follow Jesus. Now I want you to understand what you just did by raising your hand. You just defined the target of your life. You just said, with my life, here's what I'm aiming at. I want to faithfully follow Jesus. So many of us live thinking about that verse in the Bible where Jesus, at the end of your life, says, Well done, my good and what? Faithful servant. We long to hear those words. We just said, it's the desire of my life to faithfully follow Jesus. Then there's a second question that is very important. The second question is, what does a faithful follower of Jesus look like? You see, if you can't answer the second question, you have no idea if you're aiming at the right thing, and you can't hit a target you're not aiming at. What does a faithful follower of Jesus look like? So here's what I want you to do. As you came in in the weekly that they handed you, as you came in, on the inside of it was what we're calling a listening guide. I want you to grab that listening guide. If you got it, hold it up. If you didn't get one as you came in, in the seat backs, so about every four or five seats, there's a little stack of these. You can help distribute to the people around you if they don't have one. We're going to give you one of these in each, weeks of this, each of the weeks of this series so that you can follow along. It's a place for you to take some notes and then use this to go to your small group and have some discussion around in your small group about what we're talking about and what we're teaching in the weekend services. 
But right there at the top, it's got these two questions that I've just given you. You see where it's listed there? If you see the two questions, say amen. Wasn't hearty, but I'll take it. The second one says, what does a faithful follower of Jesus look like? Now, here's what I'm about to do. I'm about to give you 30 seconds to answer that question. Now, in 30 seconds, you'll never be able to exhaustively answer that question, I don't think, but you can at least begin to think down the track of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. So, I'm going to set the mood for you. We're going to give you 30 seconds. I want you to answer that question on this page. Are you ready? Go. pressure of that song. All right, pens down, pencils down, time's up, right? I know you didn't get to completely finish that, but I wanted you to go down a a train of thought in your mind about how you answer that question. Because in, in the church culture in America, And because so much of our culture of Christianity has now been transported around the world through the modern missionary movement in many parts around the world, in church culture, we often answer that question in one of two ways. The first way we answer this question, what does a faithful follower of Jesus look like, is by what a person does. And if you answer the question like that, you're really talking about conformity to a system or a pattern of behavior. And if this is the way you answer the question, the way we measure faithfulness is by asking this question. Am I doing all the right things? If you're from this culture and you think about discipleship this way, what you begin to write down on your list of what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus is... You read the Bible, you go to church, you give 10% of your income gross not net, you go on mission trips if you're really zealous, right? You try to be a good husband, a good father, a good wife, a good mother, you try to be honest, you try to do this, this, this. Oh, and then there's the whole list of things you're not supposed to do, right? And you know what I found growing up in Alabama, now living in Las Vegas? Depending on where you're from, the don't list changes. Because you guys have some stuff on the do list that's on the don't list where I came from, right? But that's typically the way we define discipleship in a church. And so here's what happens. To live up to that, I'm constantly looking at my life. Am I doing all the right things? Am I not doing all the wrong things? And here's what the reality is. No matter how hard I try, it seems like I can never measure up to that list of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, rules and regulations. But unfortunately, that's the way many churches define discipleship. So a lot of times, all they talk about is commitment, 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 commitment to do something, do something, do something. If that's your understanding of what it is to faithfully follow Jesus, let me tell you how you're probably sitting here this morning. You're probably discouraged. You're probably frustrated. You're probably ready to throw in the towel. You're probably wondering what everybody else has that you don't have. Because you got the same list of do's and don'ts, and you feel like a failure most of the time. That's one way we measure. Second way we often measure discipleship in our church culture is not just by what a person does but it's by what a person knows 
And here's what that looks like. In this culture of discipleship, we make sure that everybody learns the same set of principles or beliefs. The focus is on doctrine or teaching, and the way we measure faithfulness is by making sure that everybody can answer all the same questions the same way. And if you come out of that culture of discipleship, what it probably looked like was when you began to indicate you wanted to know God, they put you in a series of classes where you learned all the right information, and when you finished that, you got a certificate of completion, and they said, hey, now you are a disciple. Because you can say all the same things that everybody else can say in the same way that everybody else can say them, and because you now know all the same information everybody else knows, you are a faithful follower of Jesus. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's not that following Jesus has nothing to do with the truth that we know or the way that we live. It does. But both of these by themselves fall so short of the essence of the life of Jesus in the New Testament. So much so that I want you to listen to what Paul wrote to an early group of Christians in the book of 2 Corinthians in the Bible. He wrote them this letter, and look what he said in chapter 11. He said, I am afraid. I'm afraid that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And let me tell you, that is the day we are living in in the church in North America. We have so complicated and confused what it is to simply follow Jesus. And the reality is our natural tendency of the flesh is to drift towards doing something rather than being something. Give me a couple of things I'm supposed to do and not supposed to do or give me a few pieces of information I'm supposed to learn. I can, I can get my head around that. The natural tendency of our flesh is to drift towards something. And that's why Paul said, I'm afraid if you're not careful that you're going to be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Jesus. And as a pastoral team, we have a responsibility not just to, to teach the Word of God, but we have a responsibility to raise up followers of Jesus. That's why our mission as a church, we say it this way at Hope, we exist to connect people, to live the life of a Jesus follower. So if that's the reason our church was born, it's very important that we're able to answer the question, what does a faithful follower of Jesus look like, right? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be making. So here's what happened in our church early on. The first year of our church, 15 years ago, we had our pastors who were here together that were starting this church. We got together and we spent a year walking through the Gospels. We spent a year examining the life of Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we were looking for key characteristics of His life. I mean, the things we knew, we knew that He, he came, He died, He rose again, the Gospel. We knew that, but we wanted to read the Gospels with a fresh set of eyes, saying, what, what did His life look like? And at the end of a year in the Gospels, we discovered something that I had never noticed before in my walk with God. And here's what we discovered. The life of Jesus revolved around three relationships. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I want to show it to you. 
I don't encourage you to literally go home and do this, but you could go home and do it uh, figuratively. I mean, you could do it literally, but I don't necessarily encourage you to tear your Bible up this way. But you could take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and a pair of scissors. And you could cut every story in the Gospels out. And you can drop every story in the Gospels into one of three file boxes. Now, you don't have to go do the cutting, but I encourage you to take the Gospels and make you out a list. You do the homework. You do the research. We spent a year doing it, and I came away convinced of this. Every story in the Gospels falls into one of three boxes. Every story in Jesus' life. Here are the boxes. Number one, Jesus and his relationship with the Father. Think of all the stories in the Gospels that are about Jesus and his relationship with the Father. When Jesus' earthly ministry began, what did he do? When his ministry began, he went and spent 40 days alone with the Father in the wilderness. Before Jesus chose his 12 disciples, he stayed up all night praying to the Father about who those disciples were supposed to be. How many times in the Gospels do you read the phrase, Jesus slipped away while it was dark to be alone with the Father and pray? John 17, an entire chapter in the Bible, is just one conversation between God the Son and God the Father. In John 14, Jesus said this, Jesus said, when you hear my words, it's not my words, it's the Father's words in me. He said, when you see my works, it's not my works, it's the Father's works in me. So here's what we became convinced of. Jesus was 100% God, but in his humanity, he chose to lay aside the privileges of being God, and he lived in complete and absolute dependence on the Father so that every word he said, every work that he performed, every miracle that he did, every message that he preached was the Father working through him out of his dependence on the Father. Think of all the stories Jesus and his relationship with the Father. But then there's a second box. Jesus and his relationship with the disciples. Think of all the stories in the Gospels that are Jesus and his relationship with the disciples. He's having meals with the disciples. He's in a boat with the disciples. And the waves begin to crash against the boat. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat. The disciples begin to panic, and they say, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? You know your perspective is wrong on the situation when your opening line is, Lord, do you not care, right? But all these were instances where Jesus was teaching and training and pouring into and doing life with his disciples. Think about after his resurrection on the beach when he's having a camp out meal with the disciples. Think about when he fed the 5,000 and the miracle really happened in the hands of the disciples as they would give it out to somebody and look back in their basket and behold, there was more. They'd give it out again and look back and there was more again. All those stories that are Jesus and his relationship with the disciples. But there's a third box. Jesus and his relationship with the world. And by the word world, I mean those who didn't know God at all. Think of all the stories in the Gospels that are Jesus and his relationship with the world. Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, woman at the well. Over and over and over again, you find Jesus encountering people that did not know God. So here's what we discovered. Jesus lived his life in fellowship with the Father. And out of the overflow of that fellowship, it spilled into a fellowship relationship with His disciples that then overflowed 
into relationships with people that did not know God at all so that God could make himself known to them. The life of Jesus revolved around these three relationships. And I challenge you, take the Gospels. Every story falls here, here, or here. Now, having said that, did you know that the Christian life, listen carefully, the Christian life is not you and me living for Jesus. <gasps> What did he he just say? The Christian life is not you and me living for Jesus. Get this. The Christian life is Jesus living his life in and through me. Now, if this is what his life looked like then, what's it going to look like now as he lives his life through me? Same Three relationships. Major Ian Thomas said it this way. He said the Christian life is simply the life he lived then. Lived now by him in you. Oh, I'm a Christian. I got to live for Jesus. Listen, that's not in the book. Jesus didn't call us to do something for Him. He called us that He might do something through us. Jesus didn't save me to live for Him. Jesus saved me so that He could live through me. And the life that He lived then is all that He wants to live through me now. Intimate fellowship with the Father that spills into fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ and then spills out of my life into relationships with people that don't know God at all so that God can make Himself known to them and accomplish His mission. So here's the life-changing reality of this entire series. The life of a Jesus follower is all about relationships. I want you to read that out loud off the screen with me. You ready? One, two, three. The life of a Jesus follower is all about relationships. There is the target. I want to faithfully follow Jesus. Here's the target. Am I living in intimate fellowship with the Father? Do I have a personal relationship with God that is vibrant and growing and daily and intimate? Is that relationship spilling into my fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ where I'm allowing Christ in me to live through me in these one another relationships? And is that spilling into my relationships with people that don't know God at all so that God is literally accomplishing His mission in and through my life? Here's our prayer. We're going to take the next 11 weeks and we're going to dig deep into every one of these relationships and what they look like in our lives. And my prayer is that over these 11 weekends that all of us would be able to take this paradigm and lay it down on our lives and really ask the question, am I faithfully following Jesus? Stripping away all the do's and don'ts, rights and rights and wrongs, rules and regulations, systems and ceremonies, and getting back to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. Am I following Him? You know what I pray is going to happen? Some of you, some of you have been at Hope for a number of years. And you've heard us teach this before. Every four years, we walk back through these principles. 
in our fellowship. The last few times we've done it, we did it in seven weeks. We've extended it to 11 weeks. We've added some insights and tools that I think are going to be super helpful for us this time. But, but some of you have heard this before. Here's my prayer for you that have heard this before. Because here's what happens to me every time. I get to lay this fresh down on my life and see where I've begun to drift. Where my life's gotten off track. Others of you, you're a Christian, you're new to our fellowship. Since we taught through this the last time, almost 2,000 people have gone through our membership process here at Hope. we got a lot of people that have never heard us teach this before. For some of you, here's what I'm praying, that as you lay this prayer down, down on your life, I'm praying that you experience the freedom that's found in the simplicity of following Jesus. Let me tell you what happened for me. When I first discovered this stuff, it was like I got saved all over again. It's like the gospel for saved people, finding the freedom that can only be found in Christ and allowing Christ to live in and through me. And then others of you, here's my prayer, that as you lay this paradigm down on your life, here's what some of you are going to discover. You got religion, but you don't have a relationship with God at all. You don't know Him. You're doing some things and not doing some things and learning some truths, but... But you don't know God. And so my prayer is that as we walk through this, some of you are going to be born again into a relationship with God. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you three summary statements that will summarize these three relationships, and then we're going to unpack them for the next several weekends together. So here's the first one. Following Jesus is about a relationship with God. Let me pause right there for a moment. If you miss this one, you miss it all. Following Jesus is first and foremost about an intimate love relationship with God. So let me ask you a question today. I don't want you to answer out loud. Do you have a personal relationship with God? I'm not asking you if you've ever been to church. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. I'm not asking you if you've read the Bible. I'm not asking you if you come from a Christian family. Do you, do you have a personal relationship with God? That is the foundation. Everything Jesus did, He did out of the overflow of His intimacy with the Father. What He's called us to is not a religion. He's called us to a relationship with Himself. And everything God desires to do through our lives, He'll do out of the overflow of what He's doing in our lives through the vehicle of the relationship. Let me show you what Jesus said about it. John chapter 17 and verse 3. Look at this verse on the screen. John 17 and verse 3. I want you to read it out loud with me. Jesus said, This is eternal life. Stop right there. That ought to make us all lean in, right? Because here's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to define eternal life. That's a pretty big piece of the puzzle, right? I mean, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, right? I mean, that's, that, that's kind of what this whole deal is about. We want eternal life, right? So Jesus, from His own lips, is about to tell us what eternal life is. You ready? Let's read it again. This is eternal life. That you go to heaven when you die. Well, where'd y'all get off track? You, you didn't read with me, right? Isn't that what it said? We think about eternal life, and we think about something that happens out there after we die somewhere. We go to heaven someday and live on a cloud. No, look what he said. This is eternal life. Let's read it. 
that they may know you. Stop right there. He just defined eternal life not as a destination, but as a relationship. Now, the destination's a really cool part of the relationship. But the only reason the destination is great is because of the relationship. The word know that he uses here is a, an interesting Greek word. It's a, it's a word that implies personal fellowship. It's an extremely relational term. It doesn't mean to know about. We talked a minute ago about sports. A lot of us know about sports figures, sports heroes. A lot of us know more than we wish we did right now about politicians because of the cycle that we're in as a country, right? We know about them, but we don't know them. This is not the word for knowing about someone. This is a word that implies personal, intimate fellowship. It's a relational term. Let's read it. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What he's invited us into is a relationship. Henry Blackaby said it this way, a love relationship with God is more important than any other single factor in your life. I want you to hear this statement. Christianity is not a religion. Let me say it again. I want you to hear it. Christianity is not a religion. Now, there are some so-called Christianity that, that is nothing but pure religion. But that's not the Christianity of the Bible. Christianity of the Bible is not a religion. The Christianity of the Bible is a relationship that we've been invited into. You see, a religion, you take any religion in the world, I don't care what you call it. You call it Islam, you call it Buddhism, you call it whatever you want to call it. Call it Baptist, you call it whatever religion you want to call it. You boil all religion down to its core. Here's what all religion says. All religion says, we need to get ourselves right with God because we're not right with God. So if you'll just do this and this and this and you won't do this and this and this, then you hope for the best in the end, maybe, just maybe, God will accept you. You boil it all down. I don't care what you call it. You boil any religion down. That's what it says at its core. You do these things. You hope for the best in the end, and maybe God will accept you. You know what Christianity says? The exact opposite. <laughs> Christianity slaps us in the face right out of the gate. And here's what it says. There's nothing you can do. You've blown it. You've sinned against God. If we all get what we deserve, we spend eternity separated from God. And there's nothing we can do to change that. No matter how good I try to become, no matter how many church services I attend, no matter how many days I read my Bible, they can hold me under the water in baptism till I'm completely wrinkled and blue. I can take the Lord's Supper till I'm full. And it won't matter. Because there's nothing I can do 
to earn a right standing before God. But Christianity says God then did for us what we could not do for ourselves. God sent His Son Jesus into the world. Christ came, took on humanity, lived a sinless life, offered that body on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Then He rose again from the dead as a testimony that God has accepted His sacrifice for our sin. And now any one of us can put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, be born again, and we're given by grace, guess what? A relationship with God. That's what Christianity at its core is. It's a relationship. I I travel a lot on airplanes and speak other places. And when you get on an airplane, you know, you don't know the person you're sitting next to. And you sit down. It's kind of awkward. You really don't want to talk, but you kind of feel bad not talking, right? I mean, you know, so everybody's kind of got these airplane questions that they run through. You know, the first one is, oh, where are you from? Las Vegas. Hmm. That always gets a little, you know, now they're interested. <laughs> and you know what the next question they always ask you? What do you do? <laughs> Here's what I always say. I'll give you 100 guesses. Because <laughs> when they hear Las Vegas, they're thinking, hmm, is this guy a mafia boss? Who is, what is this guy? What, is he, what does he do? And man, I, I, I've been doing this for years. Now, 15 years, I just clipped a million miles with Delta Airlines. I've never had anybody guess what I do for a living in Las Vegas. Nobody. So finally, they give up out of exhaustion and say, no, really, what do you do? And I say, I pastor a church. And you can see on their face <laughs> this, there are churches in Las Vegas? And I say, yeah, I got a lot of job security with what I do in the city that I live in. <laughs> and the next question, because now that their mind has gone to all these dark places when I said Las Vegas, now they all of a sudden feel like, oh, man, he can see right through me. So they're like, they're like sitting up in their seats. So, uh, so, so what religion are you? <laughs> I'm not religious at all. <laughs> well, what do you mean you're not religious? Oh, I don't believe in religion. I think religion sends more people to hell than anything on planet Earth. Now I got them, see, and they started this. (laughs) They can't get off the plane, right? Nothing they can do. (laughs) But that's the reality. What we have is not a religion. Religion is a system of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, rules and regulations that tries to somehow earn a standing before God that you can't earn. What he's invited us into is a relationship. And it's a relationship that's made available because of everything that's accomplished through Christ on the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel gives us a relationship with God. It's like marriage. What is marriage? Think about what marriage is. Is marriage buying a house? Opening a joint bank account together, having some kids, eating meals together, planning retirement? No. Marriage is a love relationship between a man and woman, between a husband and wife. That's what marriage is. And all those other things only make sense in the context of the relationship, right? I mean, think about it. You're not going to leave here today, pick a random house, drive up, walk in their house, sit down at their dining room table, pick up a fork and say, what's for lunch, right? No, you're not going to do that. If you do, that's weird, right? You're not going to walk up to some random stranger at the mall and say, hey, why don't we open a joint checking account together, right? You're not going to do that. That would be weird. The, the, the actions have no place 
outside of the context of the relationship. It's the relationship that gives meaning and significance and value to all of those things that you do. Think about that in the context of Christianity. What is Christianity? Reading your Bible, going to church, giving some money, going on a mission trip, being a good person, trying to be a good husband, father, wife, mother. Oh, and you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this. No! It's a love relationship between you and God. And all those other things only make sense in the context of the relationship. I don't read my Bible daily because I have to to be a good Christian. No! I read my Bible because now I get to spend time with the author who wrote it by reading his word. I don't come to church because I have to to be a good Christian. God's watching you. No. I come to church because it's in my fellowship relationship with you that I grow in my intimate fellowship with the Father, and it's my fellowship with the Father that allows me to enjoy a fellowship relationship with you. You know what's sad? There are people going through the motions of Christianity. And you know what? Maybe you're here today. Well, I try to read my Bible. I try to go to church. I try to be a good person. But I, I, it ain't working for me. You know why? You've got all the do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, but you don't have the relationship. You've got the actions, but you don't have the relationship. Christianity at its core. It's an intimate love relationship with God. With each of these, I'm going to give you a key word. Here's the key word for this one. It's the word abide. Abide. We're to abide in Christ personally and daily. And what we've so complicated with all of our systems and religions and structures and do's and don'ts, Jesus summarized simply in one sentence in a garden. If you really want to know the key to living the entire Christian life, it's in one sentence in the garden that Jesus was with with his disciples. Here's what he said in John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the what? Say it out loud. Vine. You are the what? Say it out loud. So he's the what? And you're the what? Look what he says. He who abides in me and I in him, he what? Say it out loud. Bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do, say it out loud, nothing. There's the whole thing right there. Say, what do you mean by that? He said, he's the vine. We're the branches. Right? Then he says, this is how you bear fruit. You know the problem with a lot of Christians? They think it's their responsibility to bear fruit. Fruit's not up to you and me. It's not our job. Matter of fact, bear fruit in these verses, it's not even a command. There's only one command in the verse. You know what it is? Abide. What is fruit? Fruit is the life of the vine being pressed out through the branch. Think about it this way. you got an apple tree. What's coming out of the branch? Not a trick question. What's coming out of the branch? You got an orange tree, what's coming out? You got a lemon tree, what's coming out? Why? Because the, the fruit is the life of whatever's in the vine being pressed out through the branches. And all the branch has to do, listen, you ever walk by an apple, apple orchard and seen the branches out there going, working hard to push those apples out? No. Branches, do. what does a branch do? Just hang on to the vine. And if I'll hang on to, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you'll just abide in me, I will press my life out through you. What does that look like? Relationship with Father, 
relationship with one another, relationship with the world. Abide. Second, relationship. Following Jesus is about a relationship with one another. With one another. In the book of Genesis, God created the world. And everything God created, he said, it's good. The light, the land, the trees, the water, the sky, the stars, the moon, the birds, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Listen to what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 when we get the detailed description of his creation of human beings. Look what he said in Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And skip down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is, say it out loud, not good. It's not good for man to be, what does it say? Alone. It's not saying here that there was something deficient in his creation of humanity. Mankind as a creation was perfect as God intended it. What he is saying here is that although God created you and me, God created us to know him and live in fellowship with him. God created us to have a personal relationship with himself. Although God created us for that relationship with him, it was never God's design that that relationship be private. It was never designed by God for us to live in isolation from other followers of Jesus. You see, because you and I now belong to Him, we belong to His family. And God's design is for you and I to live out our relationship with Him and fellowship with one another. And, and, and a lot of people, they, they miss this. Following Jesus is all about a relationship with God, but it's not just about a relationship with God. This is the foundation. If you miss this, you miss everything. But some people have the idea, it's just me and God. We got our own thing. I don't need anybody else. I've got my relationship with God. It's between me and Him. It's personal. And you'll hear them say this. You know who I'm talking about. Me and God, we're good. Well, not according to the Bible. The Bible says if you're trying to live out your relationship with Him in isolation from others, that's not good. It's not good at all. You see, God created us to live in fellowship with Him, but He also created us to live in fellowship with one another out of the overflow of our relationship with Him. You and I belong to the family of God. Here's what that means. I don't go to church so I can check off my to-do list and keep my attendance record in heaven where I can get my reward, my ribbon someday when I get there. That, that's not what this is about. You see, I'm here because this is the platform established by God for me to live out my relationship with Him in fellowship with you. And there are things I'll learn about God I could never learn apart from fellowship with you. And there are things that you'll learn about God you could never learn apart from fellowship with me and there are things we learn about ourselves because of our fellowship with one another. God's going to use this relationship to deepen our relationship with Him. Same thing happened in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is where you read in Acts chapter 2 about the church being born. These, all these people coming to faith in Christ and immediately, nobody had to tell them, here's what you now do. They just began to gather together in large groups in the temple for the teaching of the Word of God in small groups from house to house to do life together and enjoy community. So here's the key word. The word is connect. It's connect. 
I'm to live in an abiding relationship with Christ that's personal and daily, but then I'm to live in a relationship of connection with my brothers and sisters in Christ where I'm living out my relationship with God and fellowship with them. And hear this. Here's what I'm saying. Connecting in the church, small groups and large groups, is not the program of the church. It's the life of Christ in and through me. I don't go to small group because it's what I have to do to be a good member of the church. No, connecting with other believers is the life of Jesus in and through my life. This is not a program issue. This is a Christ-likeness issue. If you're living on an island and your faith is all by yourself and you pop in and out on a weekend and you don't connect with anybody, let me tell you what that reveals about you. A deep issue of maturity when it comes to Christ's likeness because the God that we serve, the Jesus that walked on this earth, lived in fellowship with God and that spilled into relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Connect. Jesus in John 15 said it this way. Look at this verse on the screen. John 15, 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Here's what he says. The first obvious evidence that this relationship's right is that this relationship's right. We're going to dig deeper into that and talk more about that. Here's the third statement and we're finished. Following Jesus is all about a relationship with the world. The world. Now here's where we get off track here. When we say the world, we're talking about reaching people that do not know God at all. In the church, we typically call this missions and evangelism. And here's what we think. This is reserved for the Navy SEALs of the church. There's a highly trained special operative group inside the church. We pray for them, we give our money, but those are the ones. They, they wear dark suits, they come out at night. These are the, the, the Navy SEALs who carry out the mission of God. Here's what this teaches us. It's just who Jesus is. It's not reserved for the elite forces in our church to win people to Christ. It's not reserved for the elite forces in our fellowship to share the gospel in their neighborhood. It's not reserved for the special forces to engage globally in what God's doing to expand His kingdom to the ends of the earth. It's just who Jesus is. And here's what that means. If I'm not engaged in the mission, man, i got a Christ-like issue in my heart. See how this changes the paradigm when you lay it down on your life? Am I daily abiding in fellowship with the Father? Am I connecting with brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I sharing in the mission locally and globally? That's what a faithful follower of Jesus looks like because that's what Jesus looks like. And the Christian life's not you and me living for Him, it's Him living through us. Jesus said it in John 17, look at it. This is in a, a context of a prayer. He's talking to the Father. Listen to what he says. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them. Can I let you in on a secret? 
You are them. I am them. Jesus says, just like the Father sent Him into the world on a mission, He's now sent you and me into the world on a mission. This means that now, God's plan is that through us, the world would see Christ and know Him. Here's what it means. Mission is not something we do. Mission is who we are. Alan Hirsch said it this way in one of his books. He said, mission is who God is. Therefore, mission defines us. So here's the last key word, share. Abide, connect, share. We're to share in the mission, locally and globally. The Bible describes, hey, you do know that this thing called Christianity, it's moving somewhere. You know that, right? It's not going to always be like this. One day Jesus is coming back. One day there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where as His people will walk with Him as He intended from the beginning, having a redeemed, restored relationship with God on a redeemed, restored new earth that God is going to create. All of that. And it's going to be every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. One of the things I love about our church is our incredible diversity. Over 45 languages that we know of spoken in our fellowship alone. I love it because we look like what heaven's going to look like someday. Amen? And here's what he's saying. We're to live our lives every moment pointed towards that moment. Understanding that my job, my skill, my passion, everything about my life today is to be lived on mission in light of that day when he's coming again. So let me close by saying that all three of these relationships are interdependent. And this is what we're going to unpack for the next ten weeks. They're they're all woven together. I want you to see it in one verse of Scripture. John 13, verse 34. Look what it says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Abide. That you also love one another. Connect. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Share. If you have love for one another. What does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus? Abide. Connect. Share. We're going to give you some tools and handles over the next ten weeks to lay that paradigm down on your life and ask some hard questions of your own heart. Abide, connect, share. That's the life of a Jesus follower.